Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Each week, I bring you stories that expand your worldview, inspire you to try something new, and prove how food does bring us together. So I hope that you'll tune in every weekend to explore everything we love about delicious dishes, the culture, the science, the history, the backstories, and the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. This is a place for people who love to eat, and it's my goal to make your dishes come alive with flavor. So I like to say, whether you love to cook or love to eat, we can definitely be friends. All right. It's a pop quiz. Get ready. What do you think my Bloody Marys, my chili, my tacos, my paella, my French fries, my sweet potatoes, my roast chicken, and my frittatas all have in common? You're right. It's smoked paprika. So let's talk pimenton for a minute, shall we? You're seeing it everywhere. It's in lots of great recipes. It's being substituted for the traditional paprika. And I have to say, for good reason. Pimenton, or Spanish smoked paprika, ranges in flavor from mild and sweet to crazy hot. And it can be used with everything from sauces to thick cuts of meat. It's a bright red spice that has this deep, wonderfully smoky aroma, and it adds flavor to everything it touches. Now, here's the thing. Smoked paprika is just that. It's smoked. So if you love the smoky flavor that comes off your grill, if you love anything hickory or mesquite or otherwise, this paprika not only adds color, but it adds depth of flavor and a smoky hue that is just beautiful. Now, what is smoked paprika, you ask? Well, simple paprika is always made from peppers that are dried and then ground into a powder. But this process and the type of peppers can vary hugely. Now, smoked paprika is a Spanish cousin to the more widely used sweet Hungarian paprika, which we know so well. Smoked paprika is a specialty of Spain where ripe red chili peppers are dried slowly, according to tradition, over smoldering oak fires for upwards of two weeks to give them that smoky taste and the aroma. And then they're ground into this fine, brilliant red powder. Now, the smoking is what sets this paprika apart. Peppers for regular paprika are air-dried in the sun or often by machine. I use smoked paprika, pimenton, to lend the color and that sweet, smoky flavor. And it has this reminiscence of raisin-like flavor that adds a fragrance to meat and seafood and sauces and dips and vegetables. Now, in Spanish cuisine, it is primarily used as a seasoning for chorizo and the spicy, smoky sauce that you love that is the bar snack called patatas bravas. Now, 16th century Spanish explorers brought paprika from the Americas, and both Hungary and Spain eventually adopted it with enthusiasm, each creating several different styles. Today, 
Spain has two paprika-producing regions, La Vera and Murcia. Both have earned what is called DOP status, meaning that they adhere to the processing standards that are distinctive to the region. Think of Italian wines or French champagne. There are restrictions and rules, and they are followed. And smoked paprika specifically is available in three styles. You can find sweet, bittersweet, and hot, which, by the way, is the specialty of La Vera. Now, the sweet style, which is most commonly called for in recipes, which is my go-to, is the most common in American markets. But if you have a spicy palate, then I suggest you opt for the hot smoked paprika. And if you like a little bit of heat or heat and sweet, which I love, I'll often mix both of the paprikas, the sweet smoked paprika, and throw in a little bit of hot just for a bit of backbite. Now, you'll see it called pimenton or smoked pimenton or sweet paprika or Spanish paprika or any variation of any of those names, but you will always recognize it by its deep red color and that powerful smoky aroma. Now, unless the packaging indicates otherwise, it's not typically a hot spice. It's actually quite mild and sweet in actuality. Um, And you want to store it in a cool, dark place where you do your spices for no more than six months because its aroma and its smokiness does tend to fade. Now, how do you use it? Well, when you're using smoked paprika, a little goes a long way. And the smokiness can be a little overpowering if you use too much. So if you're experimenting with it in a new dish, start off with no more than half a teaspoon and work your way up from there. Now, the real draw is definitely the smoky quality. And even just a little bit adds this seductive, smoky flavor and beautiful aroma to just about every dish. Uh, Of course, if you love chorizo, you love smoked paprika. I love it with every kind of potato. I put it in my dry rubs for meat. Uh, It's especially delicious in egg dishes. And if you need a new sandwich spread, well, then I say you should amp up your mayo because I make a smoked paprika aioli. Now, you can make your own mayonnaise in the food processor and then add the pimenton or smoked paprika so it dissolves the powdery, smoky goodness. Um, I often will add it to the oil and then make mayonnaise from scratch. But even easier, this is a great cheat if you want to go from store-bought mayonnaise to smoked paprika aioli or mayonnaise, I dissolve that smoked paprika again into a little bit of olive oil and then I whisk that into store-bought mayonnaise. And you will thank me because it is just so good. And I'm sure that smoked paprika, if it isn't already, will become your new condiment crush because it's definitely my go-to flavor enhancer and it makes dishes come alive. So that is my lesson on smoked paprika. Please let me know what you use it for and will dish. You can email me anytime, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. And so it's time for food news this week. Here's some news you can use. Actually, uh, rather a kudos. By the way, this is not meant to be political. This is about feeding people. Of course, our hearts all go out to those in the Ukraine. It is painful and tragic and terrifying to watch a world war happen. 
but there are those that step up. And so you have heard me acknowledge him here before. You've heard Jose Andres live on this show. He is, of course, the chef and restaurateur of Mini Bar, Bar Mini, Chino Poblano, Bazaar Restaurants Across the Country, and more. He is the native Spanish chef who is a James Beard Award winner, but he is so much more than that. He is a humanitarian, and his nonprofit began serving meals in the Ukraine. He is on the front lines himself. Chef left South Beach Food and Wine early so that he could take his nonprofit organization, World Central Kitchen, to the Ukraine-Poland border to feed those fleeing the Ukraine. And he just began serving meals 24 hours a day. He, too, is distraught watching Ukraine under attack. And he has volunteers at every border crossing, I understand, because he believes that there are many ways to fight. And some people fight by making sure that people are fed. And Jose Andres, you are a fighter. And so we nod our heads to you. We thank you and kudos to you for taking the culinary world by storm and for setting an example. War is not the answer. May peace prevail. And coming up, you will not want to touch your dial. The editorial director of Savour Magazine, Kat Craddock, is here. And she's talking cheesy carbs. That's right. Really? Need I say more? You will stick around now, won't you? Also, coming up later in the hour, Paul Kay is here at the helm of the Wine of the Month Club, the original, in fact. Paul is upping your wine game, yes? He's going to give his best tips and tricks on how to pick the perfect bottle. And there is an art and a science to it. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Grab a snack. Come on back. There is lots more fabulous food coming up next. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. Savour Magazine, the now entirely online culinary publication for serious foodies, of which you know I am a huge fan, is always chock full of glorious stories about the wonderful world of food and traveling the globe for inspiration and new richly researched recipes for your table. And it's filled with talented food fanatics that love to cook. So who better to dish with than Kat Craddock, editorial director of Savour, as to what's trending in food. She has stopped by to share her current story work on an LA icon and lots of hearty, 
comfort food from Savor.com, where you can find daily inspiration. And I am so glad to have you back, Kat. It's been too long. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. I'm really glad to be here. Well, thank you. Me too. The story that just posted, your work on uh, the Los Angeles icon, of course, it's a Q&A with recipes all about the restaurant that is a buzz in Los Angeles, where I live, um, or nearby where I live, um, with Nancy Silverton is phenomenal. Congratulations. Kudos to you. I assume the baked pasta inspiration came from her, but we want to talk about uh, your experience. And, um, and if you would, please share the release of the restaurant, because I've yet to mention it here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Last time I was in LA, um, I was really excited to check out Nancy's new restaurant. I used to be a pastry chef. Yes. So her cookbooks have always been really important to me. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting that she's this person that's kind of transitioned out of sweets and baking and is also you know working in savory cooking now as well. Uh, so I visited the Barish, which is an Italian-style steakhouse yes. uh, in on the ground floor of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Mm. Um, and the whole kitchen, it's an open kitchen into the dining room, the whole kitchen is wood-fired. So the ovens, all the stoves, there's no gas line in there at all. Everything is cooked either in these you know wood-fired pizza ovens or on um, a wood-fired range. Isn't that fabulous? Okay, so I know that restaurant space. And it's mm-hmm. been a, a multitude of things and some, some very good restaurants from very acclaimed chefs, in fact. But the space itself is fabulous. The, the ceiling's quite high. It feels, um, there's a celebratory aspect to it, to me. I don't know how you felt in that space, but it's, it's got a buzz. When I said that the restaurant was all a buzz, maybe that meant very literally. The, that dining room feels like it has charisma and I can mm, only, um, yeah, it does. I can only imagine, I'm glad you agree. At least I think it does. I can only imagine <laughs> what it must feel like with the waft of wood fire surrounding it too. Yeah. It's funny because it is very opulent and glamorous. And yes. Nancy told me that the inspiration behind the design was this old Hollywood glamour, which obviously fits right into the Hollywood Roosevelt. Um, but it doesn't, it's not chilly, and it's not uninviting in that glamour, you know, and the, the crackle and the smell of the wood fire definitely oh. contributes to a, a cozy vibe. Yes, it's got a vibe. Thank you. That's the word. It has a vibe. And these wood-fired ovens do everything? Um, wood-fired ovens and wood-fired ranges. Yes. So, you know, they do cook in pots and pans on the stove, but it's right. all wood fire. Fabulous. And then in the oven, they do pizzas, they cook their breads in there, mm. their pastries, mm. and then on her menu, it, it's primarily a steakhouse. But she does have a section of the menu devoted to pasta, but it's entirely pastas al forno. So mm. there is no slippery carbonara or um, marinara sauce on the pasta menu. It's all stuff that she finishes um, in cast iron skillets in the oven. Um, mm. And they're wildly different. We're not just talking about lasagna here. You know, there is um, radiatore and um, a, a cheesy torchio dish. Um, and a rotolo, which I think is her, her sort of riff on a lasagna. Um, but they, they definitely stretch um, that category of pastas in ways that I haven't seen before. Okay, so what was the best dish you ate at the Barish? From the baked pasta menu, I would definitely say the, um, the radiatore. Okay. Uh, when I spoke with Nancy about how to really master the art of, of a baked pasta, she said it was all about texture, so having a pasta shape with a lot of ruffles or ridges um, mm. is really the ideal pasta for that, for that form. Yes. Um, and radiatory are those little radiator shaped 
pastas. Mm-hmm. Um, her executive chef there, Armin, makes a smoked tomato uh, sauce with lamb in it. So the, oh. the radiatory are dressed in the sauce and then it's finished oh. in the oven and the little ridges get so crispy and beautiful. Oh, and that artisanal pasta, because radiatory you don't see just anywhere, right? Really, mm-hmm. really adds a unique texture, I could imagine. And then I love anything smoked. Smoked cheese, um, smoked peppers, smoked salt, name it. Uh, smoked tomato, especially. There's something mm-hmm. about adding smoke to something that is high water content and so porous that it just infuses beautifully. I can only imagine the taste of that sauce. It is delicious. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and are you sharing that recipe on Savor.com? Because I don't think I saw it. So, you know, they were saying we could give you this recipe, but people aren't going to smoke their own tomatoes at home. You know, we, we wanted to give them something that would um, uh, adapt a little bit more easily to a home kitchen. Mm-hmm. So there's an, another beautiful baked pasta dish on that menu that is uh, torchio. So these little bell-shaped pastas mm. um, in a bechamel sauce with, I guess it's a Mornay sauce. It's got four different cheeses folded into it. Oh. Uh, and then it's c- covered in Parmesan and finished in the oven. So it gets really crispy. It's effectively the best macaroni and cheese you've ever, ever had. I was just going to um, say, that's mac and cheese on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, yep. you know, they said that you could fold in... Um, uh, um, ham or lobster or any other sort of protein that you wanted to add, but really it just plays beautifully on its own. Oh, fabulous. Okay, and that recipe is shared. So everyone right, right now, definitely shared. you might be able to hear it from New York. Everyone is typing savour.com, <laughs> S-A-V-E-U-R. Um, I'd like to go back to the vessel for a moment because you mentioned she does most everything, if I'm not mistaken, in cast iron. And mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. prompts me to think that my mother, who is an exceptional cook, could elevate her baked pasta from my childhood memories just by changing the vessel. You had some conversation about that with Nancy and Armin and Chef, did you not? We did, yeah. So, I mean, they, they use their wood-fired oven um, to make pizzas in the, earlier in the day. So they get it super hot early on. But by the time dinner service rolls around, it's not crazy hot in there, maybe five 600 degrees. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you can totally replicate in a home kitchen. Sure. Um, but they're sliding those those cast iron skillets right onto a hot stone. So if you were to preheat your own oven, say with a pizza stone or something, you could completely replicate the whole thing in, you know, in, in your apartment kitchen in New York City like me or in California. Um, mm. But, yeah, ha- cooking it in that cast iron gives it a much better crust. Yes. And we talked a little bit about the different types of materials, and she likes using copper to... Um, she said she had some stoneware that meant, was meant to go in the oven, but it kept cracking when it would go in there. But you, you really can't, you can't do any, you can't destroy cast iron, right? No, so, th- um, there's no doubt. There's some extraordinary beauty to cast iron for sure. The best thing my mother added to a baked pasta recipe in my childhood that I have carried on to this day that my son loves is corn, corn kernels corn. in pasta. Yes. In cheesy baked pasta is out of this world. Can I tell you about it when we come back? Yes, <laughs> we'll, please do. We'll swap recipes. Okay, more with Kat Craddock, the editorial director of Savour Magazine, of course, for diehard foodies. Uh, the recipes that you love now entirely online at Savour.com. You heard it here first, and you don't want to miss more cheesy carbs. Back after this.
We're back and we're dishing. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Food, fun, and cheesy carbs. I mean, what else could you want? Kat Craddock is here, the editorial director of Savor Magazine at Savor.com. You will find uh, daily deliciousness updated, in fact. In fact, you might even slobber on your computer like I did. Um, and then you'll run to the kitchen to cook. Uh, Kat, this beautiful article that you wrote, the Q&A with Nancy Silverton and the recipes, had to have conjured up ideas for you in your own mind that when you got back to your New York apartment, as you alluded to, you continued this baked pasta conversation in your own head or in your own kitchen, I should say, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure part of it was inspired by, by the New York City weather, you know, and always <laughs> wanting to, to warm up the apartment by cooking something delicious in the oven. But, right. You know, I cook a lot of pasta at home anyway, so always trying to find new ways to reinvent it a little bit. Okay, so tell us about it, if you would, because I had mentioned my mom recreated pasta dishes from a pasta dinner that became baked pasta a couple nights later, let's say. And when I cook a pound of pasta, I dump the whole box or package or bag in myself. I'm not one to save half of a box of, uh, you know, pick a noodle. So I find I always have leftover noodles, and those noodles become baked pasta. We learned just a few minutes ago, cast iron makes it better. You get cheesy crust, right? Um, But let's swap recipes. What goes in yours? And I'll show you mine. How's that? (laughs) Well, I mean, if you kind of think about fried rice, too, right? These carbs sort of dry out on the second day. Yes. But they're perfect for something else at that point, you know, and you're not going to eat day-old pasta plain with butter because it's going to be a little sad the same way you wouldn't want to eat like dried out rice but Mm -hmm. if you're going to toss it in high heat either throwing it in the oven or in a wok it's going to absorb sauces differently so I think that when you're making a baked pasta the idea is like you want to get you want a a sauce that's really going to saturate your pasta a little bit more rather than kind of just sitting on the outside of it like a like a carbonara or a marinara might yes I agree with you you need you need the moisture you need some wetness so uh, what's, what was uh, dinner two nights ago for you? Are, one of the things when you just mentioned fried rice, I just have to say, uh, I thought of the fact that you can put almost anything in fried rice and it tastes good, right? Uh, the, the leftover mm-hmm. proteins and otherwise. And the rule somewhat applies to baked pasta. There are so many options, whether it's from your fridge or cleaning out your pantry. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we actually did a story with Stephanie Burt from Charleston yes. um, a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and she she was writing about uh, Italian batarka, mm. um, and, you know, she wrote about a, a, a producer in the Carolinas making their own batarka, and of course I ended up with some of it in my fridge, the spoils of war of working on that story. So I've been folding that into pasta sauces the same way you would throw, like, a splash of fish sauce in, or um, a couple of anchovies, and having those kind of um, aquatic flavors uh, in there with like some olives and some capers. It seems mm. like there's nothing in the fridge, but if you throw all that stuff into a can of tomatoes, you have one of the most beautiful sauces that you could imagine. Oh, for sure. Um, and and that's an umami bomb to me. Now you've added that umami, that um, I have to take another bite satisfaction that you just can't get enough of. And then you finish the plate of pasta, and you know, and then by that time you've had all the carbs that you can handle. Isn't that a wonderful feeling? Uh, My mom, as I said, 
threw just about anything into a baked pasta. And it was always the best way to clean out the cheese drawer too, right? If you had a small mm-hmm. chunk of this left or the end of the bag of the shredded that, whatever it was. But corn has always been my mother's thing. Corn, lobster, chocolate. I would tell you three things my mother loves. And she always threw, and it was a can of corn when I was growing up, um, not creamed, but rather the, you know, premium kernels. Um, And today, if there's fresh corn available, it's always cut off the cob. But there is something about the sweetness of corn with tomato sauce and lots of cheese baked into pasta with a cheesy crust. Don't knock it till you try it, Kat. But of course, I introduced my son to it. And it is now, you know, a generational legacy passed down through our family because he loves it too. And that's a testament to the fact that you can put almost anything in sun-dried tomatoes one spoonful of pesto left you know goes into cream would make a beautiful baked pasta the leftover shredded Mm -hmm. rotisserie chicken right I mean almost anything goes yeah it is definitely the perfect vessel vessel for using up leftovers and I I've definitely I've enjoyed corn in a cream sauce or like a bechamel sauce but Mm -hmm. never thought to put it in tomato sauce so that's I'll definitely I'll give it a shot next okay just try it And, and in cream sauce yes for sure Oh, gosh. Or if you pureed it and had like a corn sauce, that's an old Wolfgang Puck thing. In fact, he used to make a corn agnolotti and the corn was pureed in a cream reduction and you could oh, smell the corn when it came to the to when the agnolotti was set down in the bowl at your table. I mean, literally, you could smell the sweetness. It was just so luscious. Uh, all right, we know you used to be a, a cheesemonger, a fromager, yes? I was. Yes. Yeah, I was a cheesemonger for many years. You've worn a lot of culinary hats, Kat. I really admire you for as well-versed <laughs> and knowledgeable as you are. And I would be remiss if I let you go without telling you that I am dying to eat croute au fromage, preferably in Switzerland, please. It is the lead story at Savor.com right now. Can you tell us all about it, please? Absolutely, yeah. So one of our, uh, one of our regular writers and photographers, Simon Bejada, was in, uh, in Valais, in, mm. in the Swiss Alps, mm. um, <laughs> over the past couple months. And Tough he reported life. a story for us from a bunch of cheese producers and chefs in the area. Uh, and he, you know, he wrote about Cruta Fromage for us, which is effectively uh, uh, fondue for one. So if, if you're not comfortable sharing a vat of melted cheese with a crowd just yet, this is this is the dish for you. Yes. And it's a, it's basically just uh, crusty toasted bread hmm. soaked in either milk or dry white wine, covered with more cheese than you can wrap your brain around, mm-hmm. and then thrown in the oven until it's melty and gooey. And you know, that it's most simple version. That's all it is. But restaurants throughout this region, uh, you can get it topped with a fried egg or topped with ham or sautéed wild mushrooms, uh, cornichons, pickled onions, anything you can find, basically, you can throw on top of your croute. Mm. Okay, let's go. Can we? That, that <laughs> sounds like the perfect dinner. Open a, a really beautiful bottle of white wine, um, something with a, a crisp acidity to it to cut through the richness of the cheese, and set out a couple of croute au fromage cast iron or however you keep the cheese hot and then sit down with that crusty bread that that is a night to remember i can't i can't imagine a better night uh yeah you'll definitely notice a theme with cheese and carbs yes in my winter home (laughs) yes and and i love that 
Uh, you'll also see that theme at Savor.com where there is so much delicious inspiration. Uh, congratulations to you as well, Kat. The new Savor updated cookbook, the new classics cookbook has just released with recipes and expert advice and tips and tales from over the years. And I just received it. So thank you. Um, I hope you will come back and dish on it, right? Because we have thousands of recipes to talk about in there. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, there's a, a lot to unravel in that book. I can't wait to talk more about it. Wonderful. Okay, so when you come back, as you are now a, a resident expert on this show, and I'm, I'm so proud to call you that, I hope you'll take the title, uh, the editorial director of Savour, Kat Craddock, will be back to share more than 25 years of Savour history and legacy celebrating the vibrant world of global cuisine. Wait till you see the new cookbook release, Savour, the new classics cookbook. We'll dish on it in the weeks to come, so stay tuned. And please keep bringing us such delicious content on the website because it really is fabulous. You're, you're delivering so much scrumptious insight and uh, cumulatively, we thank you. Thank you so much, Jamie. I'll yes, be back for sure. I can't wait. Good. Uh, the wide and wonderful world of recipes and cooking, wine, culinary arts, and more where you can eat and drink and shop and travel is now all posted at Savour, S-A-V-E-U-R.com. It is updated daily. Um, trust me, you will definitely get hungry and then you will run to the kitchen and figure out what goes into your next baked pasta epiphany. Um, Kat will be back to talk food with us so we can cover the new classics cookbook from Savour. Will you? I hope so. Stay tuned because there's lots more fabulous food in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're toasting today with Paul Callum Carrion, and I am so thirsty for it. You see, Paul is the second generation president and owner of the original Wine of the Month Club, having taken over the business from his dad, Paul Sr., who still enjoys a great glass of wine at age 92. Paul has tasted upwards of 100,000 wines, truly making him an expert, and his podcast, Wine Talks, shares insight into the wonderful world of wine. I truly love his deeply rooted appreciation for the grape, and I'm very proud to call him my friend and our resident wine expert on the show. So, 
it's easy to shop for wine, right? You enter a store, grab a bottle, pay for it. Don't skip that part, by the way. (laughs) Exit the store. Or you go online. You search by the pretty label in some random wine drinker's recommendation. Um, no. So how could we be better at shopping for wine? Well, if your goal is to get the best possible bottle for the money and the most delicious wine to enjoy, Paul has tips for upping your wine game. And I am so glad to welcome you back to the show, Paul. Are you healthy and well, my friend? Always a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, and what an you. introduction. And I don't have any of those answers at all. Okay, so- go- <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Actually, you have all the answers. I know you do. Well, you know, the other day I went to the market in Hermosa Beach, California. Okay. And it's, I looked on the wall and I could not believe what I saw. Every single wine on the shelf, and it's a very voluminous uh, wine section of the market, yes. had a shelf talker, the tag that hangs down and gives you the ratings and gives you the prices and buy six, get 10% off, whatever it says. So it looked like a used car lot of wine. Hmm. And I thought to myself, I taste all these wines. There's a lot of wines on the shelf I've never tasted. How am I supposed to decide? By the way, you're the wine genius, right? So, And I I know I tease about it, but when I say the pretty flower label on the bottle, I'm not kidding. You're either choosing by the colorful design or the price if you've never seen the wine before. That's correct. It's... (laughs) And I can tell you, the, the 100,000 wines we've tasted here, how many come through where the winemaker or the winery decides they're going to spend a little extra money on the glass and make it heavier so it feels better, or a little extra money on the label because they'll still screen it on, and, and it has nothing to do with what's inside the bottle. That's the big problem, and how do we know? Right. Well, you know, if you haven't tasted the wine, like I have, haven't tasted many, it'd be hard to believe, right? But there are many wines on the shelf I haven't tasted. I can then look, look at the maker... I can look at the brand, I can look at the district, I can start to draw some conclusions as to what this might taste like based on that piece of information. But guess what? If you haven't had all the experience that I've had, that's hard to do too. Before I let you go, because I always love learning from you, and you've enlightened us to Tasmanian Pinot Noir, um, in our pre-call for this conversation, you mentioned, but we never got to it, alluded to an Armenian bubbly and I am mm-hmm. very intrigued. Can you just give us a, a sneak peek taste of it? This is one fascinating wine that is going to be affordable to everybody that listens to this show. It's called Kush, K-E-U-S-H. It probably is available at most of your local wine shops. It's a very well-distributed wine now. Huh. It's made by a gentleman named Vahe Kushkarian, who, when he walked into my podcast about five years ago, was the most intelligent winemaker I'd ever interviewed. Wow. This guy has the experience and the knowledge base, and he started in Puglia, Italy, had a winery, they moved it to Tuscany, he had a winery there, then he moved back to California, opened a restaurant and a distributorship of wine in Berkeley, and the calling of his homeland, went back to Armenia and opened a co-op of wines, of which many, many young entrepreneur winemakers in Armenia can now hang their shingle and make things, and he makes a, a number of still wines, but he came out with this. I think it's under $20. It's a method champenois made, made in the bottle. It's made with indigenous Armenian grapes, Boscahat, and I forgot the other one, which is, you know, people don't walk into stores and say, can I get a bottle of Boscahat, please? No, not usually, but no. If they said, do you have a reasonable sparkler that I can share with friends, 
Sure. I would, I would immediately take them to the stack. Kush. And you'd be fascinated by it. Kush. Oh. K-U-S-H. I can't wait to taste it. Thank you. Thank you for always sharing you insight. Will. will you come back next time and talk about more of these far-off places producing wine in extraordinary fashion with genius winemakers? Because there is more than just Armenia and Tasmania, because we would love to be enlightened. <laughs> Love to do it anytime. Okay, that's the plan. Wine of the Month Club is the oldest sustained mail-order wine club in the U.S., founded in 1972 by Paul K. Sr., succeeded by his son Paul K. Jr. in 1989, whom you just heard here, and his search for wine club selections never ends. Each month, he tastes 400 wines from around the world. Tough job. Tough job. But he brings his findings to you. It is like having a personal sommelier. And I am always grateful for your knowledge, Paul. Thank you. You can learn more at Wine of the Month Club, wineofthemonthclub.com. And you can stay tuned for more of Paul's genius here and in your radio. Uh, Cheers. Paul, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that you unleashed your inner chef this hour and that you enjoyed the culinary playground. I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit for this weekend. It's a six ingredient recipe and worth every one because this bread pudding is super simple to make and insanely delicious. And because who doesn't love chocolate milk? You should be baking with it. Yes, this is my chocolate milk croissant bread pudding because croissants make grand bread pudding. All you do is in a large mixing bowl, combine chocolate milk and a beaten egg, some vanilla, sugar, and salt. You add torn croissants and I use mini chocolate chips and you let the mixture stand for about 15 minutes so it soaks up all that custard. Then you put it into a greased pan and bake at 350. Takes about a half an hour or so, and dessert is ready. I will post my chocolate milk croissant bread pudding on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend when there is lots more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.